Greet each one in Jesus' name this morning. It is a blessing to be here. It's a blessing to look forward to come together to worship the Lord. And uh, I was challenged already with that thought this morning, the devotional. And uh, for us adults, as we look at the chapter in Romans, I think we've been digging pretty deep, and uh, which is good for us. And uh, what the faith is, and uh, we in our class definitely agreed that there is actions that go with the faith. And so uh, may the Lord help us that the works behind the faith are those that honor Him. This morning for a message, you want to look to God, what He has for us in the book of Joel. It's been a challenge for me to... uh, Look into this, and from first sight, you look at the book of Joel, and you wonder what's in there to preach about. And uh, then from the conclusion of the Lord showing what He uh, wants to uh, show out of the book of Joel, you wonder, well, is an hour going to be long enough? So uh, um, I've been blessed by Joel and uh, his uh, desire to uh, serve God. And uh, any idea what the name Joel means? Pardon? Servant of the Lord. Okay. Um, yes. Some, uh, some would say sent of God, which could also mean that. Uh, the, the J-O, which was same as Hosea, that in Je- Jehovah and uh, Jesus or Joshua... Uh, sometimes comes from the word Yahweh or Jehovah, and uh, maybe transliterating it is Jehovah is God, or that he is his servant, even as, as Steve said. Joel is faced with the difficulty of calling people to repentance. And uh, uh, I've had to think about that. And uh, through that, well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Faced with the difficulty of calling people to repentance. I'm going to have you boys come up here again and, and uh, find, find Joel on these timelines. There's only five of you today. Um, you want that one? Why don't you and Joshua do that one? You're familiar with that one, Dennis? Daryl and uh, Richard, come over here. See if you can find see if you can find Joel on this one. Okay. Over here's the prophets. See here. Uh, let me see. Here's Elijah and Elisha. Oh, there he is. Okay. Uh on pick it up. Hold it up. Joel, where's Joel? Right here. Do you have any idea what year that would be? Do you see where the years are? Somewhere between 800 and 700, okay? So if we guess in here, it'd be about 760. So that one shows 760 before Christ. Let me see, what do we have here? Who's king? Who's this king? 
top one, the Z one. Zechariah, Shalom. So these are the kings of Judah of uh, Israel. Now over here, who's king of Israel of Judah? Who's this one? Ahaziah. Okay. So uh, keep holding that. He's right in here. Now this line here being the kingdom of Israel. What does that tell us about Joel that they say? Was there one or two kingdoms of Israel? One? Actually there was two. This is Israel and this is Judah. And this is where Israel went into captivity. So, okay. Just stay there. Have you found Have you found Joel here? Right there he is. So about what year is that? 800. Turn around. Hold it up. Okay, this one we're getting familiar with a little bit. Remember, here's where, where the ten tribes went into captivity. Now, was Joel before that or after that, Joshua? Before. Just before that. So they put him here before that. Just before the, cap- they, the ten tribes went into captivity. Did you find him here? Not yet. Not yet. Well, I had to look a while, too, on that one. Okay, put that one down. Go ahead, boys, lay that one down. Let's do this one and see if you can find it a little bit better. There, hold it out. Joshua, stand around the other side. See if you can find Joel. Gather around, boys. See if you can find Joel. Hmm? Where's Joel? By the looks of it, he should have brown on his name, right? Should be right there, okay? Here's the end of the Israeli kingdom. No, he's up here in the yellow somewhere, and I forget. I think maybe his name isn't Brown after all. Wow, look at that. He's way over here. Look at this. Huh? There is 800, and here it's, what is he here? 450. That's wrong. Oh, okay. Hold it up. Everybody can see. Okay. You look at the timeline. Here's the end of the second king of, of the kingdom of Israel. This is where they went, Israel went into captivity. And, uh, where the ten tribes were lost. And according to the others, he would Joel should have been somewhere, what did we say? 700 what? 60. Somewhere between 700 and 800, right in here. But these people like to put him all the way over here. Can we find him again? 450. Way over here. Okay, um, we see that Joel prophesies. Who's this, Richard? Ezra. Ezra. Who's this, Daryl? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And here's Malachi, that we sometimes think is the last of the prophets. 
So you see the difference. Some, some historians want to put him here at 760 in here with Isaiah and uh, Amos. And others want to put him here as uh, with Nehemiah and Ezra. Okay, you go ahead and hold that up. Then you can sit down. So we don't have the first few verses of Joel like we did in Hosea, where in Hosea it, it read... Um, the word of the Lord came unto Hosea, the son of Berah, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz. And if you turn the page over to Amos, we know where to put Amos, because it says, The words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa, when he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So, we, so those two books, we know right where to put the prophets, because it says so. Joel, it does not give any indication of where he was. So you see that we saw he was from 760 before Christ to all the way to approximately 400, and and possibly being the very, very last of the minor prophets, even even behind um, Malachi, or closer to Christ than Malachi. Now, uh, that's interesting. I don't think we're going to base any any doctrine on that. But I do find it very interesting that if you look at some of the things in the book of Joel, you also find very similar writings in the book of Ezekiel. And you find very similar writings in the book of Amos. So does that mean Joel was before Ezekiel Amos? Do you think it does? My question was, who was first? <laughs> Which was written first? And so um, we can put him in history uh, somewhere there that he preached repentance. He was faced with the difficulty of calling people to repentance. So our historical mind uh, wonders where to put him, but we know that he was preaching repentance. Tradition has it that he was from Betham in the tribe of Reuben, which uh, kind of blows away what we said about Hosea. What did we say about Hosea last time that would that would be that would be wrong according to this? Do you remember? We said Hosea was the only prophet what from the northern kingdom. Now, I guess one thing that we'd want to say is that Hosea did to preach to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom. And if we look at Joel, he only seems like he was only preaching to the southern kingdom. And so that's why some people put him clear at the, clearer at the end. So uh, um, take that, leave it. There's other reasons that uh, we want to look at and uh, possibly why it could be written. Well, I'll... I'll and if you if if you read the book of Joel, how many of you read the book of Joel? Oh wow, I am impressed. Um, I enjoy that. You know what we're talking about, and uh, um, you are slightly familiar with it. One thing that was advantage: we only had three chapters. Now, one thing that uh, the early writers I want to put Joel back in the early time, is that it talks to the priests and elders. It doesn't mention a king, if you noticed. And so some people want to put him in the time of Joash. How old was Joash when he was made king? 
Seven. And so they're thinking that maybe we'll put him at the time of Joash, which was this timeline, because he talks to the, king, to the priests and elders, because the king was so young that the priests and elders were running the nation. So there's different thoughts, but for some reason God did not choose to tell us exactly where and what time Joel was. Now, uh, just remember that he was faced with the difficulty of calling people to repentance. And... Uh, um, <clears throat> he was from the tribe of Reuben, possibly. That's traditional. Um, his message, more specifically, was God wanted these complaining people to look to him for forgiveness. He wanted them to repent of their sins. And uh, the hardships that they experienced. Joel, if you look at the whole book, and uh, I noticed it after reading it more than once, was that Joel is very eloquently written. And uh, his, his comparisons, the things he talks about, are very um, interesting if you look at them in depth. I had to think, as I thought, thought about how it was written, about a story that, that Steve has said already, that, that uh, if, if, uh, if uh, ask a minister if he'd be uh, willing to share a devotional, and he says, oh, he says, I'd have to study for that. He says, it takes me two or three hours or more to study for a 10, 15-minute devotional. And so the person asked him, he says, well, how could you preach an hour-long message? Oh, he says, I'm ready to go now. Joel, um, I like to think, put a lot of thought in what he wrote. And uh, that's why it's three, three chapters long. And uh, if, you, if you look at it, it is very orderly written and eloquent if we could. Now, if you really dig into history and you see that in the first verse it says, Then the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And if you would have connected it in your Bible, in First Chronicles 24.6, there's a Peth- Pethahiah. And uh, some people want to say that that's his father. And uh, it doesn't really really make sense that that would be right. Other people want to say, well, he was Prophet Samuel's son because Samuel had a Joel. What does the Bible say about Samuel's sons? They were not faithful. They were wicked. So we discard that one. When we come to the book of Joel... There are two plagues. You tell me, what are the two plagues that are written about in the book of Joel? Locusts. What's the second one? Not quite as obvious. Famine. Drought. Let's read the first seven verses to just get a little bit of a setting of Joel. Chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten, that which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten, that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep, and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation is come up 
upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. So we have the setting of the people and the nation that Joel is preaching to. And it must have been something very significant. In verse 2, says to the old man, says, has this been what you heard about? Or is this something that that uh, even your fathers have? Now we often talk about the blizzard of 76. And there's probably some other years or the heat of 88. And there's other things that we tell our children about that they're just, you know, just... It's just not quite like there's just hasn't been the same since then. And there can very likely be that we'll always say you never, you'll always remember the winter of 2011 and 2012. It was a mild winter. And it's the kind of thing that they must have done in that time as well, because in verse 3 it says, Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. And uh, they'll tell them that we, they had a winter that, was, that couldn't keep any snow on the ground. It was warm. They had spring for three weeks. It was always muddy, but it was always warm in the 30s and 40s for three weeks during that winter. And it must be that same kind of attitude that they had here, except that they were talking about locusts. And in verse 4, it uh, we think about four different locusts when actually they're probably different uh, stages of the locusts. The, uh, the palmer worm would be uh, very likely the, uh, gnaw- the gnawing locust or the first stage of the locust. And then actually the locust would be the second stage, the canker worm, as the larval stage. And then the, and then the caterpillar the uh, worm stage. And so very likely it's all the same as a locust, and it very possibly, I believe, that it happened four different times at different intervals. Uh, here in the U.S., we find this hard to believe because by the, you know we have sprays and we have all sorts of things. And, uh, but I guess an a, uh, infestation of locusts can be quick and very devastating. Do you ever have anything like that in Oklahoma, Paul? Not really. Japanese beetles probably the worst. Okay. We did have a lot of grasshoppers. Sometimes they would strip gardens. <coughs> Big fields wasn't quite that. Mm-hmm. Um, How could they strip a garden? Didn't you just quick go spraying? We didn't have sprays. We didn't use sprays. But okay. All right. Well, we read about the ten plagues of the Israelites, and we see the locusts coming on Egypt and just devouring everything. And, and, and I read of stories of where they could strip a tree in 15 minutes. They get done with it, and all the leaves are gone. Read about that in storybooks. Our uh, bedtime stories has a story about that. And the Lord actually turned them back after they prayed. But uh, I guess they can come in a horde that is just devastating, and you just cannot cannot kill them. In fact, supposedly even today, out of the desert or sometimes they swarm to a point and they, they so quickly just devour everything. And uh, probably the closest thing we had in El Salvador was an ant that could strip a tree in a night. And we used to keep those those sprayed, but they just chew the leaves off. And so it's not that it wasn't possible, but uh, we see um, it says... 
In verse 7, he hath laid my vine waste. The grapes were gone. The leaves were gone. He has barked my fig tree, almost like he they chewed the bark off of it, which would kill a tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. So very likely it seems like it was a lost cause. The branches thereof are made white. It's like they chewed the bark off and they where his comment um, and cast it away is as if, you know, it's gone. It's uh, can't. Can't raise any more figs. It wouldn't have any more figs. And so the uh, aspect that Joel takes of this is that your, your land is laid waste. And God is doing this so that you repent and come back to Him. And in verse 8, He tells us, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth that uh, lost her fiancé before they could get married. Verse 9, the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests and the Lord's ministers mourn. So they don't have a meat offering and a drink offering because there isn't any. But you know that's kind of a vicious circle because you say, now how is it they're supposed to take an offering of something they don't have? Now why don't they have drink offerings and meat offerings? Because of what? Because of the famine. Why is the famine? I haven't told you that one yet, have I? Why do you think there was a famine? Wickedness. Wickedness. And so in a sense, there is, you know, they didn't take, even if they would have been offering sacrifice or so on, their wickedness even killed the things that they could offer. So it's that, that circle that people say, well, we don't, you know, they can just, just claim ignorance or innocence and say, well, we don't have anything to offer. Well, the real reason is that you don't have anything to offer is because of your wickedness, because of what you have done. And everything is destroyed because of you turning against God. Verse 10, the field is wasted, the land mourneth, for the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languishes. Be ye ashamed, O husbandmen. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree languishes, for the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. Even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Now remember this scene of a dried up land. I mean, no fruit, everything is gone, the locusts have eaten it, there's no water. Um, you wonder about the water. Um, Verse 18, how do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. And, uh, O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pasture of the wilderness, and the flame hath devoured all the trees of the field. Looks dry, just like it was been burnt. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up. There's the famine. And the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So there isn't, hasn't been any rain because of their wickedness. And his request, his, his plea, his cry to the people <clears throat> begins in verse 12 of chapter 2. And let's look at that. It says, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. <clears throat> so we have here 
what the people are to do. Joel takes the initiative to tell the people, this is what you have to do. And he says, turn to me with all your heart. Number one, with fasting. Number two, with weeping. Number three, with mourning. Number four, and rend your heart and not your garments. We want to look at that one a little bit more. Verse five, and turn unto the Lord your God. Verse six, uh, number six. So Joel actually takes the message and tells them what you need to do. This is what you have to do. Turn to God with all your heart, with all these items that he mentioned. And he says in verse 13, rend your heart. And I appreciate your questions on this one. Someone submitted this to me. He says, what does that really mean? Rend your heart and not your garments. I don't know you're familiar with the, uh, uh, with the uh, custom in the East that when you come to severe pain, that you rend your garments. What did Jacob do when they came and told that Joseph was eaten by a wild animal? Do you remember? says he rent his garments. I find it very interesting that it even happened in the New Testament. Does anybody know where it happened in the New Testament? Acts chapter 14. It's Paul and one other one, but they wanted to sacrifice to him or something. And it says they rent their garments and went in amongst them and tried to stop them. Ray Vanderlyn tells the story of a uh, few years ago being in Israel and their guide being a Jew named David was with them and uh, was, was, they were giving a, a tour. He was giving them a tour of Israel and the message came to him as, as they were together. Someone came by and told him, David says, your father had a massive heart attack and he died instantly. Or he, he is dead. And it's just like David, ah, oh, and he just, just tore his garments in the agony of his heart. But what Joel is saying, that is an exterior sign, but he says, make it deeper. Make it go deeper. Let it be what takes place actually inside your heart. What do we do, Lord, to bring back the prosperous Uh, crops, fruits, and to make our land uh, fruitful again. And he says, rend your hearts. And probably the closest scripture that I could find to it that, that would explain what needs to be done is in Psalm 51, where it's written, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And there's more references, and I'm sure you can think about them, but God wants a broken heart before him. And Joel was telling that. Joel was saying that God wants you to open your heart and just let him into the farthest corner of it. Let him clean it out. Let him be what you want him to be, what he wants you to be. The beginning of what Joel is preaching of repentance to these people. It must be a changed heart that results in changed lives. What was John the Baptist's message? You tell me. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He also preached, bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. Be ready to 
be ready to repent. And I, and I, I think in Matthew it also says that Jesus taught, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Rend your hearts. Be ready. Be ready to, to uh, open your heart to God. I had to think about, and, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but in Pentecost, after Peter preached, what did the people say? What shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? That, I think, is, is being ready for repentance, rending the hearts. And not only did he talk to just individuals, as we looked at in 12 and 13, but we see in verse 18, now wait a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 15, verse 15, okay, let's, let, let's go to verse 14. We read verse 13, verse 14, Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? <coughs> So Joel is asking the question, if you individuals repent, let's see, who knoweth, if God is going to change his, the future and bring the rains again, keep the locusts away, give you a prosperous country, give you a fruitful nation. Who knoweth, if God is going to, and we talked about that, uh, about faith and works in our, in our Sunday school today, and I'm, I'm suspicious you did too. And if we do practice our faith by works, I believe that God alters the future. If we remain in sin, we continue in trouble. If we follow God in action on our faith, I believe that it can happen what it says here in verse 14, and see if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him. Leave it a meat offering and a drink offering to the Lord our God. So, Joel was asking each individual to repent and turn to God. But he didn't stop there. Verse 15, he's asking the elders to bring the whole country together. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Number four, gather the people. Number five, sanctify the congregation. Six, assemble the elders. Seven, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Eight, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and let the bride out of his out of her closet. Number nine, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen may rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? It's important. Get the people together and make a fast. Make them, uh, sanctify them. Bring them to the Lord. And they always tell me that there's one thing that, that is never put off, and that is a wedding. I know of one wedding that was postponed because of a snowstorm, but other than that, I don't know of anything. But it says, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. It's the time just before they meet together in the way that the Jewish weddings are. It says, don't let them come together in marriage. First, repent. First, come to God in repentance. And then, 
If you can bring the whole nation together that way. Verse 18. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. And I will be no more make you approach among the heathen, but I will remove far off from you the northern army, possibly the locusts, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the uttermost sea, and his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and re- fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall be overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord our God, that he hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed." And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. God is going to make them prosper to the point where he says in verse 25, I will restore to you the years that you lost. I'm going to bless you with a blessing that you do not contain. And we notice that even the cattle know the difference. Look at verse 18 that we, that we looked at in verse, in chapter 1. How do the cat beasts groan? Can you hear the cows? Ooh, 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 ooh. We haven't had any water lately. The beasts groan and the herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Look at verse, uh, 22 of chapter 2. Be not ye afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. So even the beasts find the comfort when God's people repent and come to him. Even the beasts find that comforting when we repent. We think, well, that's an Old Testament philosophy. That's something that was preached in the Old Testament. That's definitely right. What about seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you? It's in the New Testament too. We serve God. He takes care of us. Do we stand back and just let him come? Yes, we do. But we also go out and we work our garden and we plant seeds and we do what we can that the Lord may shower his blessing upon us. All these things shall be added to Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 12 that Jesus... talks about that. And I'm going to say again, as this is not where I have it in my notes, our changed life can alter our future. If we repent before God, he can bless us and will bless us in a way that uh, is tremendous. Now we come in verse 28 of chapter 2 to a prophecy of the future. Is this prophecy messianic? What do you think? When you read it, did you think this was a messianic prophecy? Preaching about the Messiah? I actually admire Joel because I think he just went past the Messiah 
and saw this. Let's read in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in whose days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Bible has, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. When was this prophecy fulfilled? That's right. And, uh, it was what we call the day of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And how many came to know the Lord that day? Three thousand. Three thousand came. And then later it was five thousand. And then later it was a great multitude. And if you follow through Acts, it was then a, multi- a great company of the priests came to know him. So God fulfilled this prophecy. And the day of Pentecost, and we even have Peter quoting this scripture in Acts chapter 2. And so I believe that Joel is very prophetic, yes, and I almost think this is a messianic prophecy in the sense that he was looking just beyond the cross and seeing the salvation that was going to happen. But I see something more glorious than that in the sense we were talking about prosperous fields and and fruit trees and all of that before this. Joel had his vision set on a prosperous Christian community. One that loves the Lord. Those that come where it says, uh, your old, um, verse 29, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders. He was looking for that spiritual awakening that was going to happen. And so even though it took 400 plus years, maybe 700 some years for this, for this prophecy to be fulfilled, but when God's people turned to Him, it was fulfilled. Now let me ask you a question. How many people turned to God when before this prophecy was fulfilled? How many people first turned to God to start the succession of this prophecy coming true? Just before the day of Pentecost, how many people saw the Lord as our Savior and Lord and Messiah and coming King? Bible doesn't tell us. I'm just picking on your memory. How many? 500 some? Could be. It was less than that. What did he start with first? Not quite. 11. And then 12. And then 120. And then 500. And then it goes on. This prophecy starting to be fulfilled when there was 11 people, 11 men, that saw that Jesus came to die for our sins. He wasn't going to liberate them from the Romans. 
But he was going to be their crowning king, Messiah, and he's going to give them salvation of their heart. That, in a sense, made me weak when I saw that this prophecy is fulfilled and what we enjoy today, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is because of 11 men going out and saying, Thank the Lord for the death of his son, Jesus. And Joel saw this, the prophecy of the future, saw what was going to happen. Faith and action. Then God will pour out his spirit. Do we recognize, I was, uh, it'd be a message all of its own if we would go to uh, Pentecost and and I encourage you to read chapter 2 of Acts. But do we, would we recognize God's word happening like Peter did? Would we recognize that Joel, what Joel said is going to happen? And, and we could quote the scripture and say, today, God is pouring out his spirit, just like he said back in Joel. And he uses the word Joel, and he uses the name Joel to say, this is what is happening. Would we recognize things that God prophesied that are happening today? That's a question I don't know if any one of us can answer. But more than that, I ask the question, how would we have responded to Joel's teaching here? How would you and I have responded to Joel's teaching? I'm going to bring it back home personal just a little bit more. How do we respond today to Joel's teaching? How do we respond today to Joel's teaching of rend your heart? Turn even unto me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rending our hearts before him. Asking like the people of Pentecost, what shall we do to be saved? Do we respond that way to Joel's teaching? Do we respond that way to God's teaching? Or are we offended that someone should have an evil thought like that about us, that we'd be guilty of doing something wrong? We sometimes even use the word hurt. But we often follow it with the words, but I've forgiven him. Through this, I have the Lord has uh, given a beginning, a seed of a message. How do we respond to conviction? Sometimes I wonder today if we know how to respond to, to how to respond to conviction. I'm going to ask you a personal question: How does God get your attention? How does God tell you that you did something wrong? I'm going to let you answer that one. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. Do you think there was any people in Joel's time that came back to Joel and said, Joel, thank you for telling us what we've done wrong and we need to come to the Lord. What else should I do? Do you see something else that I should do to repent, to draw closer to God? You know, I appreciate the beginning of what you've told me, but I sense you've got more. In the beginning, when I started in the Minor Prophets, I mentioned to you that um, part of this was in the Sunday School Quarterlies. And uh, 
In verse, and, and uh, here's a little portion that got my attention in the quarterlies. In verse 16 of chapter 1, um, it says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. And uh, they mentioned that not only locust and drought took away their joy. Not only locust and drought took away their joy. But they went on to say that the real reason was they had rebelled against God. And then they went on to say, here is a good lesson for us today. Some people blame accidents, illness, even their parents and their church for their unhappiness. When really it is their attitude toward these things that makes them lose their joy. I'm going to read that again. Here's a good lesson for us today. Some people blame accidents, illness, even their parents and their church for their unhappiness. Really, it is their attitude toward these things that makes them lose their joy. And uh, I believe that's what he's talking about there in verse 16. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes, yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God? I find it interesting how Joel sees these things. Turn to chapter 3. And I know this has been quoted in many messages, maybe not recently. I don't remember hearing it recently. But look at verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You know, we are all faced with decisions. What, was, what could this be, 2,400 or 2,700 years ago? And these people were faced with decisions just like we are today. They are faced with decisions, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And I believe, honestly, that Joel saw the church. Verse 18, And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness, for the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed. For the Lord dwelleth in Zion. Or the Lord is over all. He says, I'm going to cleanse them. I'm going to purify them. I'm going to give them a heart that seeks God. I am going to give them what it takes to follow me. I was challenged with the the call to repentance that Joel had. Now, I uh, handed out those little slips, and uh, there's still some on the banister, that each of these prophets often talk about. And uh, I didn't take the time to fill it out. So I'm going to ask you this morning, those five things. What did you see? What was Joel's warning? What was Joel's warning to the people, the kingdom of Israel? What was their warning? What did you see in the book of Joel? I don't have that paper right with me. Does someone have that? What was the first question or the first point? Thank you. First one, warning of impending judgment because of the nation's sinfulness. What was going to happen? Anyone? 
The locusts were going to continue to come and eat. Yes. What else were you going to say? That's it? Anything else? I think the drought was going to continue in verse 18 of chapter 1. Number two, a description of the sin. What was their sin? Is there a description of it here in Joel? One five, awake ye drunkards and weep and howl ye drinkers of wine because of the new wine for it is cut off from your mouth. Okay, they were drunkards. What else? Was there any other? Thirteen, gird yourselves and lament ye priests. Howl ye ministers of the altar. Okay, so very likely the priests weren't what they should have been. Any others? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a good question. Did verse 8 to 9 have to do with the prophecy of Hosea? Some people think they prophesied at the same time, and yes, it would have. But other people think no. So, uh, very possible. I, I, I don't know, but it could be. Any other descriptions of their sin? That's right. In telling them what to do, they told him what they had done. In telling them to turn to him means that they had turned away from him. And and with fasting means that they had been feasting. And with weeping means they had been partying. And with mourning means that they had been laughing. And rending their hearts means that they closed their hearts. So yes, when you have those things, what they should do is also a description of what wasn't done. Number three, a description of the coming judgment. I don't know whether that one's included. If you found any, you've done better than I have. 2-1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. The day of the Lord is coming. Very good. The day of the Lord is coming. Um... Now that we mentioned that, verse 14 of chapter 3 would in a sense say that, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord. Description of coming judgment. Number four, a call for repentance. Did we see that one? <laughs> Obviously, yes. Definitely a call for repentance. Number five, a promise of future deliverance. Definitely, yes. Look at verse 28 of chapter 2. What happened at Pentecost, there's going to be deliverance if you turn to me. There's going to be a new road, a new way. Any other comments on these five? Okay. As far as what? Okay. Promise of future deliverance. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Very good. I like that promise in there. The Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Okay. 
The two verses that we had read, the last two, 20 and 21, how God is going to cleanse their, our blood in verse 21. In verse 20, Judah shall dwell forever in Jerusalem for generation to generation. Okay, something else that I, I noticed and somebody pointed out about uh, Josiah, uh, Joel is that he prophet of the day of the Lord's day, and we saw it twice here just now. But in one fifteen, he talks about the Lord's day, the day of the Lord is at hand. Two verse one and verse two, he talks about that day. In chapter and in verse ten and eleven, he talks about that day, the Lord's day, and. Uh, and then in uh, 30 and 31, he talks about the Lord's day. And then also in 3, verse 14 and verse 16, even as we looked at. And some people call him the prophet of the Lord's day. And being not, just, not meaning Sunday, but the coming day, the second coming of the Lord. The prophet of the Lord's day, the second coming of the Lord. So I uh, found that very interesting. Let's close by reciting our... Uh, Theme verse together, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. You ready? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And those verses we want to look at in the sense that these minor prophets and their messages, even though we don't hear them very often, are pertinent messages for today. And if we had to call one word for Joel's message, what would we say? Repent. And I believe his message is for us today as well. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the message of repent. Lord, give us an understanding of rending our hearts, of coming before you open, accepting how you want to speak to us, accepting when you speak to us. And Lord, we just pray that in a real sense, you would give us a keen sense of our conscience and when you speak to us. May repentance become a daily experience for us. May we be willing to look to you for our guidance with our hearts rent before you, asking that you would come and inhabit every corner. Clean it out. Make it yours. May we be like uh, the faithful ones of Israel that want to serve you faithfully today. Lord, we pray that you would continue to direct us in all that we've heard today, that it might take root in our lives, and that it would help us to grow as we go from here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.